7 in the book of Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews. Um, I hope you're excited. It's all that. God is so good. There's neat things he's doing in this church. Man, as we gather as elders and we talk about this, uh, there's kind of like the pulling out of hair, which, you know, Chris already did. Um, But, uh, (laughs) sorry, man. (laughs) He did it for me, too. Um, But, man, like, because it's hard to, like, where do we go? What do we do? But God's just giving direction, and God's just giving grace. And the most important thing, I, I think, is that he gives us a unity. And that is something that is just unmatched in this church, where we have been at many other churches. I'm sure many of you have. There's a love that God is working in this church for one another. While we might differ on, on, on various things, and even as Aaron shared earlier as he did the Apostles' Creed, we come from different backgrounds. We have different experiences But the gospel really does unite us. And we read in the gospel that it's to unite us and that we are to be of one mind, one heart, because there's one spirit who has saved us. And that is demonstrated here every week. And so it is with a joy that we serve here as elders. And it is with a joy that even in the mystery and confusion of what is going on, how do we navigate this, that our God is in control. And so we are excited and we just ask and plead with you to join us in prayer as we continue to wrestle through with this. Okay, Hebrews 7. Super excited to be back in Hebrews 7. Uh, We will do our best to finish the chapter this week. We tried last week. That didn't work. So this is try number two. Um, We're going to be in verses 22 through 28. Last week, we asked the question, why do we need priests? Because the whole thing about Hebrews is we need this priest and he needs to be greater than the priest of Levi. Well, why do we even need a priest? And one thing that we pointed out all throughout the book of Hebrews, it talks about the need and, and, and that because of Jesus, we can come near to God. Priests make it possible for us to be in the very presence of God and experience his blessings. Without the priest, without a high priest, we cannot come into the presence of God. We cannot enjoy his blessings because it's through the priesthood that sins are atoned for. It's through the priesthood that we are forgiven. And so we need a priest. But the problem is, is that when we look at the Old Testament, we have these priests of Levi, is that they're not sufficient to truly deal with our sin problem. And we pointed out two things that were deficient, not that God set up a faulty system, but that this wasn't the end-all system in the Old Testament, is that, number one, the Levitical priests were sinful. The, the book of Hebrews will say they were weak, that they had to make a sacrifice not only for themselves or for the people, but also for themselves. And the second, um, the second deficiency is that they kept dying, They were subject to the very effects of sin. So their ministry never continued. We always had to replace them because because they were interrupted by death. So that leads us, as you're walking through the Old Testament, and every year coming to the Day of Atonement, where every year you're making more and more sacrifices, and there's this just priesthood that's just covered in blood every day for the sins of the people. And you're just asking, is this it? Is there ever going to be an end to this? Can there not be 
a greater answer, a greater solution, a greater priest who offers a greater sacrifice, who will fully deal with our sins. And so that's where we come to Jesus. And so the author, in order for us to understand how we come to Jesus as our great high priest, that's where he introduces the very mysterious figure, Melchizedek, which really you'll just have to go last week to listen to that if you missed it. Um, But the quick, the quick synopsis of it is he was a king priest, which he's the only other king priest in the Bible other than Jesus. But that's not really the author's main point. His main point is that when Genesis talks about Melchizedek, he gives no genealogy. So it appears that this man has no genealogy and his priesthood is eternal. That's his connecting point. Because we need also a priest who lives forever, whose ministry will never, ever be over. And so that's where he jumps from Melchizedek and says, we need a priest like this. And so through Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, he shows that the Old Testament expectation was that we would one day have a priest after the order of Melchizedek, meaning not from Levi, not weak, not sinful, not finite, but one who will, will reign as the high priest for all time. And that's Jesus Christ, who fully will deal with our sin problem. And so today what we're going to look at is what does Jesus do as our high priest? Like what's his role and why is he qualified? So that's what we're going to look at. What is his role? Why is he qualified? And just to remind you, the recipients of this letter, they're struggling in their faith. They've been persecuted. They've been suffering. They're questioning, do we stick with this Their hearts are anxious, they're in turmoil, and they're going, how do we move forward? They're fearful, they're debating about just leaving it all and going back to Judaism. And maybe you're here this morning, and you experience great fear, and you experience great anxiety. Maybe you're struggling with certain sins, and you just wonder, is is this it? Is this my life? Am I just going to struggle with these sins for all time? Is there no hope? Is there no victory over this? And you're just wondering, am I stuck in this spiral here? So as we walk through this text, I want you to see not only the necessity of Jesus, but the joy and the hope and the comfort we have as Christians because Jesus is our eternal high priest. And so with that, we're going to stand and we're going to read chapter 7, verses 22 through 28. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the son who has been made perfect forever. Father, no, Father, we just praise you. And Lord, I pray that our hearts are moved to humility, to awe, to adoration as we consider the role that your son Jesus Christ has as our high priest and why there is no greater priest than he and why he is absolutely and fully qualified to fill this role. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would increase our conviction in this gospel that you have given us. And that we would stand firm on it each and every day. I pray for whatever fears, whatever struggles, whatever anxieties that we're going through, that they would be crushed by the weight of your word that contains the truth of your son Jesus and what he does for us. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Some of you say that I talk fast. I might talk fast today. We normally have a little bit more time for sermons, uh, so we're going to just see how we get through this, Uh, but I'm excited for this text. Uh, So we're going to start off. Uh, What is the role of Jesus as our high priest? Or I think how I have it written down, what does Jesus do as our high priest? Number one, he saves us completely. There's, there's like only a few key points. There's a lot of subpoints today, as you can see in your bulletin. But he saves us completely. And so we're going to further unpack that in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 when we unpack this new covenant that he brings. But I want to point out three things from this text that we need to see why he saves us completely or, or what it means. Number one. When it says that consequently he saves us to the uttermost, it means that Jesus forgives all of our sins. Do you know that? When Jesus came and died on the cross, his blood is sufficient for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. Now Paul, in the New Testament, one of the other writers He will use the word justified often to help us understand our position before God because we've been completely forgiven. And the word justified means to be declared righteous. No guilt. We are now innocent. We have the righteousness of the Son of God upon us. Just listen to what Paul says, Galatians 2.16. It says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. He wants you to know that when you believe in Jesus, you are fully and absolutely forgiven. That you now stand before God justified. God is a judge and you who were guilty now by the blood of Christ are seen righteous, forgiven before God. All of your sins, all of your shame, all of your guilt is washed away by the blood of Christ. And you might say, hold on. He forgives all my sins? 
but you don't know what I've done. You don't, you don't know what's been done to me. How's that possible? I mean, we can come up with a resume of sins. And we can wonder, can the blood really be sufficient to bring forgiveness for all my sins? And, and I know that there's many who struggle with that. Who it comes back into their minds. Am I really forgiven? I mean, I've done this. And, and Satan loves to whisper those lies into our ears. Where he, he reminds you of your sins. He reminds you of why you should not be innocent and declared righteous before God. Well, I want you to think about Paul for a moment. As I was studying this week, just this truth just came about Paul, a writer of the New Testament, wrote 13 out of the 27 books. Apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, before he is saved, he murdered Christians. He arrested them. He beat them. He killed them. He authorized the killing of Christians. Now, when we come into the Word of God, the church is described in multiple ways. The church is described as the body of Christ, but it's also described as the bride of Christ. And so when Paul is killing Christians... Just put that in perspective. Who's he killing? Who's he going after? In one sense, you could say, well, he's going after the very Son of God himself, for it's the very body of Christ. And that would be very true, and that's actually what Jesus says when he confronts him in the book of Acts. But he's also going after the very bride of Christ. And he's killing the bride of Christ. Now, I just want you to think, men, if you had someone who viciously attacked and killed your wife, what would you do? What would you do? How would you respond to that? When we come into the gospel, we see that Jesus saves Paul by grace, justifies him, adopts him into his very family, calls him now a child of God, brother of Christ. I mean, just let the grace of God just flow down, just overwhelm. This is the forgiveness that God offers. And when we say, well, well my sin might be too much, hold on. Really? Your sin is greater than the blood of Christ? that takes sinners who attack God and kill his bride, he will redeem them, but your sin is too much? I, I don't think so. But that's what our pride will do. That's what our sin will do. So the first thing we must know is that when it says, consequently, Jesus saves to the uttermost, he provides absolute forgiveness, that his blood washes away our sins, so we are completely justified and made clean before him. Number two, when it says utterly saves us, it means Jesus alone saves us. The word utterly means complete degree or to the full or entire extent. Jesus doesn't do nine-tenths of your salvation and you swoop in and come do the last part. He doesn't put all 999 pieces of jigsaw puzzle, but you're like, let me put that one in. And we did it together and you then high-five him. And he's like, man, thanks for the help. Like, that's not what happens. 
As we read earlier in Galatians, we are not saved by works, but by faith in Christ. It's all based upon who Jesus is and what he has done. Or Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. We are utterly helpless. Or as, as Chris quoted earlier from Romans 5, 8, we are sinners. We are enemies of God. And it's when we are sinners that God demonstrates his love for us that he would save us. It is when we are in no means desirable that that's when he saves us and changes us and transforms us. And number three, it means that Jesus saves us for all time. Notice the flow of the argument. Look at 24, and then we'll read 25. Verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. What's the point that the author is making? What's he focusing on? He's focusing on the eternality of Jesus' priesthood. Jesus is an eternal priest. Consequently, Therefore, because he's the eternal priest, verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's he doing? He always lives. He always lives so he can save to the uttermost. That's the point. One of the reasons Jesus completely saves you is because his priesthood will never expire. Do you know that? His, the salvation that he offers, the atonement that he gives in himself, is is valid as long as he is high priest. And how long is that? Eternity. Jesus will never die and never be recalled. No. Just saying. Uh, He's our eternal high priest this means that if you believe in jesus christ you're forgiven you're forgiven today you're forgiven tomorrow you're forgiven forever you're forgiven always as long as jesus is high priest so when you wrestle am i forgiven well is jesus high priest yes he is therefore yes you are forgiven now That's number one. He saves us completely of his role. What's his other role that he emphasizes? He intercedes for us continuously. Look back at verse 25. It says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what God, do you know what Jesus is doing right now as he sits on the throne of God with God? Do you know what he's doing? He's interceding for the saints, for those who believe in him. Now, what does that mean? It means many things, probably more things than we actually know. But one, right now, Jesus is testifying that you are forgiven. The whole context of this passage in Hebrews is that Jesus has saved us from our sins. And there's other passages in the New Testament that speak of Jesus' intercession with regards to our forgiveness, our justification in the present. So let me read two passages. Romans 8, 33 to 34. It says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that 
who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So right now, Jesus is interceding for you and I that there would be no condemnation ever against us. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, this is a good thing, because this next part we're going to find out that we really need. If anyone does sin, that's you and I, we sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God, continually bearing witness that all who have believed in him are forgiven. So when Satan points out your sin and says, see God, this person can't be forgiven. Look, they messed up again. They, they rebelled again. They continually profane your name through their actions. Jesus intercedes and proclaims on the basis of his blood, you are justified. That's what he does every day as he holds his priesthood. But it also means something else. Jesus strengthens you and I to overcome sin and temptation. Let me ask you, have you ever felt helpless against sin? Have you ever felt like the temptation that's coming to you is too strong? And it's like, well, I, I just have to give in. Maybe it's anger. I, c- I couldn't stop it. I was just angry. I just had to yell. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's impatience. It all just seems impossible. Like, how am I supposed to overcome this? But what we understand in the book of Hebrews, because of Jesus' intercession, we're able to overcome sin. We're able to overcome temptation. Uh, let me give two passages. Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered... When tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So when you're tempted, who helps you? Jesus. And why is he able? Because he knows temptation. And if you remember, when we preached Hebrews 2, we emphasized the fact that because he never gave in to temptation, he experienced the full power of temptation. He never gave in. He took the full weight of it, which means he knows how to help you in whatever degree of temptation you are in. You say, well, well, how does he help? What does he do? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, whatever you're facing right now, Jesus, as our great high priest, gives grace and mercy. If you're tempted to commit adultery, you're in a hard marriage, and you say, surely God wouldn't want me to stay here. I can't stay in this marriage any longer. He gives you grace, and he gives you strength to endure every day. If you're stuck in a form of addiction, if you struggle with depression, if you wrestle with anger, if you wrestle with lust, and you just say, how am I supposed to stop? How am I supposed to overcome this? It's not by your strength. Never once in the book of Hebrews does he say, well, based upon man's strength, you're able to do this. It's always turning us to the priesthood of Jesus. What does the priesthood of Jesus do for us right here? He gives grace and mercy. So whatever need you're in, 
however helpless it might feel, however spiraling out of control, our high priest is there that when you lift up your voice and you say, I need help, like a fountain pouring forth grace and mercy, he pours into your life that you would trust in his promises, that you would trust in him more than in the situation that you're in. Andrew Murray said this, without ceasing, without ceasing their streams forth from him to the Father, the prayer of his love for everyone and every need of those that belong to him. His very person and presence is that prayer so closely and inseparably is he identified with those he calls his brethren. When you call forth, he pours forth grace to you because he intercedes for you constantly at the Father's right hand. If I could summarize what he does, you might say it like this. He makes sure all who draw near to him are saved and are kept saved. Or you could say it like this. Jesus intercedes for us so that we will finish the race of faith. Or in John 6, 37, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why? Because he intercedes for us, and he strengthens us, and he gives us grace and mercy. This is the role of our king. This is the role of our priest. He saves us utterly, saves us to the uttermost, and he intercedes for us continuously. Right now, that's what he does. When you go home later, you're going to fight, and you quarrel, and whatever sin comes, and you're going, what do I do? We turn to Jesus because he intercedes for us, because he always gives you and I grace and mercy. Never, ever are we without hope because Jesus is the eternal priest, and as long as he holds his priesthood, there's grace and there's mercy that he gives to you and I. Never, ever forget that. You might say, but what makes him qualified to do that? What makes Jesus so much better than the priest in the Old Testament? Look at verse 26. It says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That's kind of awkward in the, in the ESV. A little awkward wording. The NLT, New Living Translation, says it this way. He's the kind of priest we need. Um, my wife and I, we moved into a new house, oh, I don't know, like five and a half, six years ago. And, and so before, we had these kind of big oversized couches, you know, with the really big arms. And, and they're like, if you took off the back cushions, they were like the size of a, um, a twin bed, it seemed like. I mean, they're just they're deep couches. They were oversized. They fit great in our last houses. They were just those couches you can like lay on, super cozy, super comfortable. Um, but we put them in our new living room and... Like they were bigger than the living room. And we're like, well, well, that doesn't really work. And they didn't fit the space. And so my wife, she gets up on OfferUp. She gets up on Facebook Marketplace and whatever other, you know, website there is. And she figures out, you know, what is it we need. And she finds these couches. We go and we get these couches. And we bring them in. And we take the last ones. We put these new ones in. And they fit. It's like they were designed for the room. The room was designed for them. They perfectly fit the space, and they do exactly what's needed there and in a much, much greater way than couches fit our living room. Much greater way. 
the author of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is our perfect high priest who perfectly fits our needs. Perfectly fits our needs. In fact, as I was wrestling through like just with this this morning, just kind of going back over it, um, when we're evangelizing, we're exposing at that moment what someone believes and why it doesn't fit their need of salvation. That's in essence what we're doing. Because everyone trusts in something. Even, even the atheists will trust in something. We're all trusting in something to provide whatever salvation is our desired goal. And yet, when we're evangelizing, we're wanting them to know there's something greater. And only Jesus actually fits the need that we have as humans. So when we're sharing the gospel, one thing you can be thinking of is, what are they trusting in? What are they hoping in? What are they, what are they banking on? And then what you want to do is begin showing how, how does that really fit? Is that really sufficient to bring about the salvation you need? Is it worthy of all of your hope, all of your trust, all of your worship? And then what we want to do is, is show them only Jesus is fitted to be our high priest. He's the only one who can offer salvation. He's the only one who can give us hope. And so we are going to now pick up the pace, and we're just going to go through these qualifications very quickly. Why is Jesus fitted to be our high priest? Why is he the only one? When John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, truth, and life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Why? This is why. Number one, in verse 26, we read that Jesus is holy, innocent, and unstained. Holy means fully devoted to God. Innocent means free from guilt and evil. Unstained means free from stain, or from stain or blemish. Here's the point. He's perfect. He's using all of these words, stacking on top of each other, so that you and I would be, whoa, holy, innocent, unstained. There's no one like that. He is absolutely perfect in every way. Moral perfection. Never sinned. How do we know that he's perfect? Brings us to number two, and I kind of combined these. I might have messed up your outline. I don't know. We're, we're just, we're working with things here. He's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So take both those words together, or both those phrases. He's ex separated from sinners, exalted above heavens. I believe the author is using those to say the same thing, which he will unpack later in chapter 8 and 9. In those chapters, he's going to point out that the priests of Levi, they served in an earthly tent, in an earthly tabernacle, an earthly temple. And then he's going to say, that was a copy, that was a shadow of a much greater heavenly reality where the true presence of God is. Jesus is separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He doesn't minister in a copy, in a shadow. He ministers in the true heavenly reality. He is in the throne room of God. He is on the throne room of God. He is near to God, and because he is perfectly near to God at all times, not once a year like the priests of Levi, but he constantly dwells there. That's why you and I are able to be with God, 
And that's why he's able to intercede for us perfectly. Next one, because he made one sacrifice. All throughout Hebrews, the author mentions that the priest of Levi had to do multiple sacrifices, one for the people, one for them, every year. Because they're sinful and the people are sinful. But verse 27 makes it clear. Jesus made one sacrifice. One time. And that one sacrifice is absolutely sufficient. If you came here today thinking, by my mere attendance, by my giving of the offering, by my serving in children's church or wherever, I'm going to add to my salvation. I'm going to make myself more desirable to God. I'm going to make myself more worthy to God. No, you're gravely mistaken. Jesus made one sacrifice. That alone is sufficient for why we are forgiven. You add nothing to his forgiveness. He made one sacrifice for all time. And again, How long does his one sacrifice last for? How long is it good for? When does it expire? When his priesthood expires. And when is that? Never. He's qualified forever because he's sinless. He dwells in heaven. He made one sacrifice. And you might then just say, how is even any of that possible? Because once again, he draws us our attention in verse 28 to the contrast. The priests of Levi are weak, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than law, appoints who? A son. Because Jesus is the son of God. That's why he's able to be our high priest. Yes, he is man. But yes, he is also God. And it's on the basis of Jesus as the Son of God coming in the, in, the, in the image of man, coming like you and I in our likeness, that that's why we're able to be saved. And now he maintains that likeness. He forever has joined humanity to himself, that he would forever be our priest. Never, ever will the sacrifice of Jesus be expired. That is the role of our high priest, is that he saves us completely, he intercedes for us continuously, and he's able to do that because he's sinless, because he's the son of God. That is who our high priest is. Um, I want to encourage you to think back through this text. We went through it quickly, but we struggle with sin on a daily basis. We struggle with remembering the truths of God. And when the sin comes, and we're just facing that sin, and maybe we've given in to it, and we go, is there hope? And we feel defeated, and we wonder, is that just what life is always going to be like and feel like? We're to come back to this passage where we remember, no, we have a priest and he is perfect and we are forgiven and he gives you grace every day. This is a truth you need to remind yourself of. And it's a truth you need to remind 
your family of, your kids, your spouse. And it's also why we gather not only like this, but also throughout the week, whether in table groups or Bible studies, in many ways. Because we need to remind ourselves of this truth right here. Because if we're honest with one another, we often wrestle with sin and we feel helpless. We feel anxious. And we need this truth brought to us. And the truth is who Jesus is, what he has done for us. So I just want you to remember that when you're talking with someone on the phone, remind them that Jesus is their eternal priest. Remind them that as long as he is our priest, there's forgiveness of sins. Let's pray and take communion. Father, Father, you sent your son and he joyfully and willingly came that he would give his life as the sacrifice so that then you would exalt him to your right hand and he would be right now in the throne room, on your throne, with you as our high priest, interceding for all who believe in him for all time. God, we praise you for that. I pray that every person in here knows that Jesus is the only high priest, knows that there's no hope, no salvation in anything other than Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is trusting in something other than Jesus, I pray that they see the futility of that. They see that whatever it is they're trusting in, it's not fitted to actually be worthy of their trust and able to bring about a salvation. Only your son Jesus is. Lord, may we know that and may we be a people who encourage one another in this truth every single day. In your name, Jesus, amen.